The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you are a speaking God. Thank you that you are a living God and you are here with us right now and you want to talk to us. Since that's true, help us to listen. Help us to listen knowing Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, is with us to make us right, to be in your presence, to be called your children. Lord, that we can hear this word safely and honestly and openly because of Jesus. So help us read our hearts, help us to be more like you, all because of what Jesus has done for us. And we pray this in his name. Amen. A survey from a couple years ago wanted to find out what those who never went to church thought about the church. A survey for those who never go to church. 72% of those people who never go to church say that one reason is because the church is full of hypocrites. 44% of those same people agreed with the statement, Christians get on my nerves. Now, to me, that's not a big deal. How many of you have Christians who get on your nerves? <laughs> you don't have to not go to church for that to happen. But let's listen to them for a moment. I suppose we get on their nerves because sometimes, at least, we're what? We're hypocritical. We are hypocritical. And it gets on my nerves too. Doesn't it bug you when people are hypocrites? No, you're fine with it. Doesn't it bug you when people are, yeah, it bothers all of us. Well, remember that to be a hypocrite basically means to be an actor. That's what the Greek word meant, to be an actor. So you say and espouse and promote one thing, but it's just a what? It's just an act. Whereas in your life, you're living and practicing and doing another thing. And wouldn't you agree that hypocrisy hurts? I mean, this is serious. Hypocrisy hurts. Uh, think about the person in your life, when, and if you think of the word hypocrite, who comes to your mind? Okay, well, don't, don't say it out loud. You've got somebody that comes to your mind when you think about hypocrisy. Is that person your favorite person? No. It, you don't trust them, right? Trust has been broken with that person. You can't trust what they say because you don't think they're going to live it out. And you don't respect them. We don't trust or respect people we think are hypocrites. Not only that, my hypocrisy influences other people. Um, as a pastor, the more I'm a hypocrite, the more I influence other people to be a hypocrite. Not only that, my fake, my hypocrisy, makes Jesus look bad to everyone I'm, I influence because Jesus is the one I'm talking about. And that's the biggest lie ever, right? Anything that makes Jesus look bad... It's horrible because who's the most beautiful one ever? Jesus. So it's a serious thing. We need to listen to it. What do we do with hypocrisy? We're back in the Gospel of Matthew this morning. Uh, some of you remember I started this back in December of 2012. Wow. And we're heading towards the finish line this Easter. I don't know about you, but I have loved studying this book and teaching this gospel. It's an eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. And Matthew's been clear, hasn't he, from start to finish? Jesus is the Christ. He is, the, he is God's promised king and savior. By chapter 23, we're in the last week of Jesus' life. 
We saw back when we were in Matthew, Jesus has come to Jerusalem during Passover, presented himself as the Christ, and the crowds went crazy for him. Then he shocked everyone by shutting down the temple and basically claiming himself to be the replacement. And then all the religious leaders came to try to discredit him, to try to make him look bad to the people in debate. They couldn't do it. And so now in chapter 23, here we are, last week of Jesus' life, all this crisis stuff has happened, and Jesus is now going to pronounce his judgment as king over the religious leaders. He's telling us what he thinks of them and their leadership, and they're going to kill him for it. And according to Jesus, here's their basic problem. He says it six times in this chapter. So if, an, if, a, if a writer gives you something six times in one chapter, pay attention, right? What does he say about him six times? You hypocrites. That's what he says. You hypocrites. You hypocrites. You hypocrites. You hypocrites. 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 What's their problem? They're hypocrites. And next week, we get to see his seven curses upon them. Whoa, okay? We get to do two weeks talking about hypocrisy here. Why is he so angry about their hypocrisy? Why is he so upset? Well, it's like we said, hypocrisy kills. It hurts. It ruins people. And it makes God look bad, which is the worst thing there is. So let's take a step back. What do we do with this? Okay, we're going to listen to Jesus tell all the crowds and the Pharisees that the Pharisees and the scribes are hypocrites. So here's one option. What are we going to do with it? Well, we could just have a party and be like, hey, look at those silly hypocrites. Look at those Pharisees. Aren't they hypocrites? And we'd be like, yeah, they are. Amen. Let's go home. Is that helpful? I mean, it's fun. Is it fun to make fun of, these, of this group? Sure, we'll have a little fun with it. But is it helpful? And the Pharisees ceased to exist in 70 A.D. Yay for us for making fun of a group that doesn't exist anymore. Or it might even be more fun to say, isn't the church full of hypocrites? The church. That's one of our favorite games, right? There's whole blogs and books about this. The church is full of whatever it's full of. I've said it before. You probably have too. The church. Who is that? Yeah, who, who are these people? Well, that's complicated, isn't it? But there's only one thing we could do that would actually keep us from being self-righteous hypocrites. And that is to admit that sometimes we are self-righteous hypocrites. And listen to Jesus' words and look at our own lives. Wouldn't you agree? Isn't that the only real option to keep from being hypocrites ourselves? So here's my challenge for you. Because as we go through this text, we're going to make fun of the Pharisees a little bit. It's safe. There's no Jewish Pharisees here today. And then we're going to try to apply it to ourselves. And here's where it's going to be really hard for me and hard for you. Because naturally, you are going to think of other people who are hypocrites like this. Okay? You could probably have a list of 25 ways I could apply this sermon to my life. You're going to have a harder time finding it in yourself. And here's why. Tim Keller says, some sins, um, it's obvious that you're doing them. Like, you know it. So, for instance, adultery. You're not like, all of a sudden, hey, this is not my wife. Yeah, you knew that. 
Okay? Stealing. What? I, I don't, don't know how it got in my pocket. Yeah, you did. You, you knew. Okay? But I don't have a lot of people coming up and saying, Pastor Matt, I got a big problem with pride. It hides itself. It's embedded in your heart, in your subconscious. It's how you vindicate yourself. It's how you justify yourself. It's how you excuse yourself. By definition, it stays under the covers. You can't find it. And so if you get to a point where we say, look what the Pharisees did. How did you do this? You'd be like, boy, I don't think I do. Look again. Look again. Because... In my life, in my experience, we've all got a little inner Pharisee that lives in our heart. He comes natural. You get born with this guy. So let's learn. Let's learn from Jesus. He's going to teach us about hypocrisy. He's also going to show us the only remedy to hypocrisy and the way out. So let's look at ourselves. Let's see the remedy and let's Massage that in to see how it changes us. Are you ready? First thing about the Pharisees, let's look at verses 1 to 2, chapter 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, so he sent it to everybody. Verse 2, the scribes and Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. So what's the first thing he says about the Pharisees? Well, They're hypocrites, and they show their hypocrisy by being terrible examples. They're terrible examples. They preach, but they don't practice. What is this Moses seat thing? Well, the core of the Bible for the Old Testament is the law, the Torah. Who wrote that? Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Core of the Bible for a Jew. And so Moses' seat is that seat in the synagogue where basically you preach and teach the Bible. This is where you teach the Bible. And so these Pharisees and scribes, they had a certain role in the community. What's their role? Teach the Bible. Okay? So when he says, he basically says, when they tell you the truth from the Bible, what should you do? Do it. Okay? Now this doesn't mean that Jesus always agreed with everything the Pharisees taught, because just read the gospel. (laughs) He doesn't. Um, this means that when they're right, you should obey them. Now, first of all, I just want to be amazed at this because when you see a pastor or a leader fall, you see him be- his hypocrisy exposed, what's the next thing you want to do with all his teaching? Throw it out. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. It doesn't matter if they're hypocrites. If they teach you the truth, follow it. Do it. Because see, isn't it funny for us, we want to tie the credibility of the leader to the truth of what he's saying? Look, the credibility is important. It makes a big difference. But I hope you don't think God's word is true as long as I live it. I've already let you down, right? That can't, can't work. God's word is true. And so Jesus says, even if the teacher is a total hypocrite, if he teaches it right, listen to it, obey it, believe it. That's amazing to me. But he says, don't do what they do. Don't follow their example because they preach, but they don't practice. 
Here's the Pharisees' biggest deal. They say, we love God. We love Scripture. But they took their traditions to such a level that they basically wrote new Scripture to where they never obeyed the real Scripture. And when God came for a visit, what did they do with him? They killed him. They're hypocrites. Bad examples. How important is our examples as Christians? How important is my example as a pastor? All through the New Testament, Paul writes, Timothy, Paul writes, um, be a good example. He says, watch your life and your doctrine. Watch what you teach and watch how you live. If you do that, you'll save some. Here's why. If I'm a bad example, what does that do for you? It confuses you. It demeans the truth makes the truth not look so good, not look so real. And what about us as Christians? Are we supposed to be a light to the world? Are we supposed to be examples? What happens if we're bad examples? What happens if we don't practice what we preach? We confuse the world, don't we? We demean the the truth. We make them not want to come to church, maybe. Wow. So the first thing we see here, what's Jesus' problem with the Pharisees? They're hypocrites, they're bad examples, they don't practice what they preach. So what's the next question we should ask ourselves? Where am I a hypocrite? Where am I a bad example? Where's my life inconsistent with what I claim? Maybe write something down on your, on your bulletin or something. Ask, ask God to show you one thing. Where do you expect certain things from people that you won't offer? You want the benefit of the doubt. You want forgiveness. Sometimes you won't give it, maybe. Or if you're married, you want your spouse to work with you, listen to you, understand you, compromise with you, pursue you. Okay? Are you doing that for them? What are we showing our children? We're telling them this. What are we showing them in our example? You know, children have a way of being so good at seeing the difference between our words and our deeds. They're going to know all the Jesus stuff is fluff. If in our hearts it's fluff, they're going to know. They're going to know what we love. What are we showing them? What are we showing our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors? You might be the main picture of what some people out there see of Jesus. God has you in a unique place with, with unique people. You might be what they see and what they know about Christianity. If that was true, do they know that Jesus came to save sinners? Do they know his love? Or if they got their impression of Jesus from you, would they say he's kind of ambivalent about whether or not you became a Christian? Jesus doesn't seem to care as much. Why? Well, they don't seem to care as much. Never heard it once. That's a hard one for me. And we talk about evangelism or engagement or invitation and sometimes I just one of my hypocrisies is sometimes I just don't have a heart for I mean I say that it's pretty important to trust Jesus but sometimes I don't feel it for the world around me at all the Pharisees were hypocrites bad examples what about us just try to find one thing second thing about the Pharisees is they were merciless merciless 
Look at verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Now, this doesn't mean that the Pharisees didn't keep their own rules. There's amazing stories about how the Pharisees worked so hard to keep all these ridiculous rules. They were committed. What it means is that when somebody else couldn't keep their rules, they showed no compassion to that person. They condemned them. They judged them. They went over the top on them. So like, I'm keeping all these rules. You can't keep them. I won't even move a finger to help you. I'm just like, well, to heck with you. Curse on you. You can't keep the rules. You can't keep the rules. We see this when Jesus heals the man with the withered arm on the Sabbath. There's this amazing story. This guy's got a withered arm. He can't lift his hands and worship like everybody else. And on the Sabbath, Jesus just has compassion for him. He cares about him, and he heals him. Wow, the arm is just, it's healthy. You would think, unbelievable, amazing. And the Pharisees are like, we're going to kill you for that, Jesus. You broke our rule. You broke the rule. Or how about this one? You guys heard of the story of the widow's mite in Luke? Remember that story? They're in the temple and all the rich guys are giving their rich offerings. And this widow comes in and she's just got, what, two coins or something. And she throws them in. Jesus is like, they, yeah, they gave a lot, but percentage-wise it wasn't that much compared to what they have. She gave everything. And we usually use that as a, well, God sees in percentages. He sees that if you don't have much and you give it, he sees and appreciates that. That's probably part of the lesson, but I think there's a lesson we usually miss. Right before that, end of Luke chapter 20, Jesus said, Beware the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. Verse 47, he says, They devour widows' houses. How do the scribes devour widows' houses? Luke 21, Jesus looks up. It's the next verse. We get it broken up because our Bibles separate it. It's the next chapter, so it can't be connected, right? It's Jesus' next words. They look up and they see a widow who puts in all she has to live on. And then Jesus, his very next words after that. While some people were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he says, well, as for these things that you see, the days will come where there will, be not, there will not be left one stone upon another. So follow the path here. Jesus says, these scribes, they wreck widows. And then he sees a lady putting in all she has into the offering plate. And then he says, we're tearing this thing down. All in a row. The scribes and the Pharisees were happy to have the widow put all she had to live on into the offering plate. And that makes Jesus angry. She had, they had, to, she had to keep your rule about giving and now she doesn't have food to eat. I'm tearing this down. It's all about money. It's all about rules. Listen, if you're down to your last coin, you don't have any food left, don't put that in our offering plate. Don't give. We want to give to you. They were in love with their rules, and if you couldn't keep their rules, they were not showing you any compassion. They had no mercy for those who couldn't keep all the rules. So what do we do with this now? What are the rules people have to keep to get compassion from you? Now we can obviously, we can think of these groups of people. We feel like the church should have given more compassion to them. We're like, I wish the church would do that. Okay, that's great. I'm talking about you. 
You need to think about you. Only you can do this. What's the group of people that doesn't get any compassion from you? Maybe it's an age group. Maybe it's a style. You know, for a lot of us, it's become a hobby horse for progressive Christians to make fun of conservative, self-righteous Christians. And so, you know, I was joking with someone earlier that that my favorite way to be self-righteous is to be self-righteous towards the self-righteous. Did you catch that, right? I don't have any mercy for the people who don't have any mercy for other people. I'm just like them. Maybe it's the people who drive poorly, road rage, no mercy. I don't know. Find it. And if you're like, there's no one like that, I show compassion equally to all. All right. Doubt it. Ask God to show you. What are the rules people have to follow to get your compassion? The Pharisees were hypocrites, bad examples. They were merciless. They did not show compassion to those who could not keep their rules. Number three, the Pharisees loved human standards. This is my favorite. They loved to please the crowd, crowd pleasers. Look at verses five to seven. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. So why do the Pharisees do what they do? Verse 5. I want everybody else to see it. So who are they living to please? The people watching. And this is how they do it. Phylacteries and fringes. Okay? You guys ready for this? This is awesome. There were two things in the Torah that kind of brought these ideas out. One was the fringes. It, It was a thing in the law that if you belonged to God's people, you'd have a fringe on your robe. Just a subtle thing that said, I'm an Israelite, I belong to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But you can see how the logic goes, okay? If a little fringe on your robe shows that you're an Israelite, well, what do you do if you're a super awesome Israelite? These guys had Harley Davidson cowboy type fringes on their robes. (laughs) You ever seen that guy driving by on his motorcycle and it's like four feet of trail behind him? That's the Pharisee. Because I'm not just an Israelite, I'm varsity Israelite. And I'm showing you by how long my fringes are. Now to me that's funny, let's all laugh at that. Because the best thing to do with a self-righteous person is laugh at them. Hurts their self-righteousness. Second thing, the phylacteries. There was a lot in the law that said, you should have my word on your, on your head, you should have it on your hands. Now, most people have taken that to be symbolic. You don't need to tattoo John 3.16 on your forehead. You need to know God's word and think about it and love it. You don't need to have it on your hand. You can. It's cool if you do Greek or Hebrew. But you don't need to write it on your hand. You need to do it, right? It's the idea that God's word dominates your life. Well, the Pharisees, no, we want wide phylacteries, okay? They had ESV study Bibles dangling from their heads. Bible verses dangling from their heads. See, this is, this is hard to get around, right? You got the fringes, you got the scriptures banging into your forehead so that everybody would see when they walked by, behold the holy man of God. <laughs> Sounds funny, but it's what they did. And they love titles. Do you see how they like to be greeted? 
Hello, rabbi, super-duper Pharisee person, titles. Um, Anybody in the CRC, you've been in the CRC, do we like titles sometimes? Have we ever loved titles? Wouldn't you love to be the first chair elder deacon of the first CRC of the New Jerusalem and Grand Rapids? Went to Calvin twice. Got ordained by Domine Vander Dutch. Titles. Titles. They lived for the title, for the greeting, for the outfit, so that everyone could see what they did. Jesus says in Matthew 6, you just give so people see you give, you pray so people see you pray, you, you, tithe, you fast so people see you tithe, or see you fast. They lived for what people thought about them. Everybody, he, they wanted everybody to see how great they were. Now, it's fun to laugh at them, but if we, we can only laugh at them if we can what? Laugh at ourselves. Have you ever sold yourself out so that you could please a certain crowd? Have you ever lived to please a crowd? Did you ever want to be seen as righteous, cool, intellectual? You want to be seen as intellectual. You do what it takes. Fashionable, sexy. We'll do anything, won't we, in America to be seen as sexy, athletic, competitive, Religious, what is it? What's your crowd? You know. Where'd you change how you dress? And just everything about you so you could please them. See, we're just, we, we're just like them. We're just like the Pharisees. We just did it in a different way. Even those who live for trying to show people that we don't care what they think. You ever met anybody like that? Maybe it was you. I don't care what you think. I'm going to make sure you know it. Because I care so much that you think that I don't care what you think. Dang, I care what you think. (laughs) See what happened? (laughs) We live for human standards, human praise. We live to praise the crowd. So the Pharisees were hypocrites, bad examples. They were merciless. They lived to please the crowd. It's awful. We're like them. Why? What's the core problem? What's the core issue? Well, Jesus transitions here and he says, all right, fellas, you people who follow me, we're going to roll differently. And his core, his core statement is in verse 12. Look what Jesus says in verse 12. <clears throat> whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So he's telling his people, you're going to humble yourself. So what's the problem with the Pharisees? Pride. Pride. Hypocrisy, self-righteousness is simply an echo of pride. What's pride? C.S. Lewis said, pride is, listen to this, I think, I think it's amazing. Pride is ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. Ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration on the self. It's preoccupation with self. So because it's preoccupation with self, it can have different forms. There's, Two basic forms of pride. One is superiority. That's the way we generally think of pride, right? Superiority is, I'm better. But that's just one side of being preoccupied with self. What's the other side? I'm worse. Insecurity. 
deep insecurity is a pride issue because what, what are both superiority and insecurity consumed with? Self, me. Tim Keller talks about endless ego calculation. Can you imagine that? Endless ego calculation. So whatever room you're in, whatever crowd you're in, you're calculating how people are viewing you because you're consumed with you, self. Am I getting the thanks I deserve? How am I looking? How am I being regarded? Are people appreciating me, recognizing me, respecting me? What about me? Pride is always asking. Infatuation with self. And pride is evil, isn't it? It's evil. Really, Christian theologians have have always said that the core sin behind every other sin is pride. I want to be God. I want to make the rules. I want to be the focus. I want to be the judge. It demeans, it ignores, it replaces God. And pride is really what builds self-righteous hypocrisy. Why did the Pharisee do all their good deeds? So that everyone would say, oh, Pharisees, you're so holy and great. Worship me, the Pharisees are saying. And do you see why it's hypocritical? With their mouths, the Pharisees say, worship God. And with all their motives, the Pharisees say, worship me. And when Jesus said, you're sinful and you need me, the Pharisees could not handle that. Pride was why the Pharisees, Pharisees were merciless. Because if you're prideful and you're superior, then why is the other person suffering like they are? Because they're losers. They're worse than you. So of course you can demean them. You're better, they're worse. Pride made them this way. Where's your pride? Are you prideful? We're all prideful. I'm deeply prideful. How do you find it? How do you handle criticism? Somebody criticizes you, how do you handle it? Do you get angry, overabundantly angry? Why could that be? Or maybe you melt under it. You can't even function anymore. I've been criticized. They're right. I'm horrible. What's that? That's that insecurity angle. Or about bitterness? Again, Tim Keller said, you can't stay angry at someone unless you stay superior to them. What do you think about that? You can't stay bitterly angry at someone unless you stay superior to them. So if you're bitter, haven't forgiven them, you want revenge, you're probably thinking something like, I'd never do what they did. I'm a better person than they are. It's pride. Well, that's a downer. This is the bottom of the hole. Okay, pride, it's pride that has me, a crowd-worshipping, merciless hypocrite. And you as well. How do we get saved from this pride problem? A lot of people expect the answer to be more religion. Go to church, read more Bible, hang another ESV study Bible from your head, increase the length of your fringes. Get another title. But what's so ironic is Jesus' worst enemies are the most religious people. 
So we see religion doesn't kill pride. It puts gas in, in the tank of pride. Look at how good I've been. Look at what I've done. And so we need a remedy that's surprising. Look at verse 11. Verse 11. Jesus says, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Then he says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You know, Jesus has said that before. In Matthew 20, Jesus said basically the same thing, and then he said, in verse 28, The greatest among you must be your servant, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Look at the contrast. We, especially exemplified in the Pharisees, are prideful. We want, we want the attention. And so we're merciless. Even though others deserve mercy, we're not perfect. And we're living to please the crowd instead of God himself because we're so prideful. What a wreck. Then there's Jesus, the only one who truly deserves to be exalted, right? Jesus could say, praise me, and it's love, because guess what's the only thing that can truly make us happy? To see and praise him. I mean, he, he is exalted. Jesus could actually judge us all and show us no mercy, because he lived everything out perfectly. He's king and judge. He's not a hypocrite, and he knows the truth. Jesus could be all of these things, and yet what did he do instead? He humbled himself and laid down his life to pay the price for my pride and for your pride. He gave his life as a ransom. He died for the hypocrites. He died for the prideful. And this alone can kill our pride. What does the cross do to your superiority, if you look at it long enough? There's Jesus dying on the cross for sins. What will it do to your superiority? Well, when you come to the knowledge that no matter how good you think you are, when truth comes to truth, the only way you're getting saved is for the Son of God to die for you. How superior are you? Didn't we all just kind of get put on the same playing field right there? Sinner who deserves judgment. It kills our superiority. There's one level. There's Jesus, and then there's sinners who need him. All of us fit down here. But not only does the cross kill our superiority, what does it do to our insecurity? Right? There's this insecure part of pride. I'm worthless. I'm useless. I, I have no value. Well, the cross doesn't just say, you're so bad, I have to die to save you. The cross also says, you're so loved. I willingly died to save you. And see, this is what we've needed the whole time. All this self-righteousness stuff, we're putting up these walls so people can't see our cracks. We're building this show so people will think we're great. But man, what about when all the walls are down and we're naked and somebody sees who we really are? Could we really be loved then? And that's what the cross does. That's why it's, the grace of God is so amazing. Jesus says, I see you, and I paid for you, and I love you. 
just as you are right now. Wow. What will that do to your insecurity if you let it? You're loved. You are known and you are loved. It's okay. So then he frees us. He frees us from having to gaze always at ourselves so that we can gaze at him, so we can gaze at this world he's made for us, so we can gaze at others and instead of using them for our own perception of self, actually loving them. The cross sets us free. And so if we walk back down the path, we started with hypocrites, bad examples, merciless, crowd-pleasing because of pride. If the cross breaks our pride, what does it make us? cross gives us humility. Look at verses 8 to 11. Jesus said, all right, you guys, you're not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. Call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who's in heaven. Neither be called instructors, Instructors, for you have one instructor, the instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Now, is Jesus saying we're not allowed to use titles like pastor or you can't call your dad dad anymore? Is that what he wants you to do? No calling me dad, kids. Jesus said so. No, that's not what he's doing. He's comparing it, right, with the Pharisees who love their titles because of their pride. They love titles. And Jesus says, when you, when you look at me and what I've done for you and who I am, don't be in love with this title thing anymore. You know, in, in modern American Christianity, we probably don't care as much of the titles, but maybe there's still a celebrity pastor thing that happens sometimes. The super duper awesome pastor. And I, some of these guys are my favorite people, so I'm not dissing them. But Jesus is making a, he's making a strong claim to say, look, When it comes down to it, who's the one celebrity, awesome, super-duper leader pastor that you need? Jesus. That's who you need. Have one instructor, Jesus. Who's our hero that we love? Jesus. He's the hero. He's always the hero. And the rest of you, end of verse 8, you are all brothers. How should we really view one another? Brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters. Do I have a role in your life as a pastor? I sure hope so. Where'd we get that idea? That's from the Bible, right? It's a role. But ultimately, am I like super great Christian and you're not super great Christian because I have a title? No, what are we? I'm your brother. You're my brother. You're my sister. If we're in Christ, we're brothers and sisters, okay? We play a role in each other's lives as God puts it together. But really, it's, if you became a Christian one second ago, You are the same in your title as the one who's been a Christian for 40 years and has master's degrees and whatever else. Because you're in Christ. That's all that matters ultimately. It's all that matters. If you're in Christ, you're righteous. You think somebody else is more righteous because they went to church longer? Well, that's that's a theological problem, right? How do you get more righteous than Christ? I'm more righteous than you. I don't know. They have the righteousness of Jesus. It's pretty righteous. You don't need a super-duper mega-awesome person. You got me, Jesus says. The way you see each other, brothers and sisters, and the way we operate is service, verse 11. So instead of a prideful desire to be served like the Pharisees, right? Keep my rules, call me titles. 
Let's serve others. Let's put the title down. The more Christian titles you have, the more love and service should be in your life. Let's be humble. Do you see how the gospel gives us humility? Why can we do that? Why can we serve now? Because Jesus has served us. Right? He's the greatest. He's served us. So that means the greater we'll be in his kingdom, the more we'll do. Love and service. Instead of pride, the gospel gives us humility. Instead of crowd-pleasing, what does the gospel give you? Remember the Pharisees? They got every, everybody has to look at me like I'm holy and righteous. What does the gospel do for you there? Listen, if you have this identity in Christ, if you're sure that God loves you and he's pleased with you and his title for you is son or daughter, as it were, do you have to live for that crowd's approval anymore? If you value the Holy One, the Creator, and if you value what He says, that sets you free from being a slave to the public opinion of whatever group it is. You don't need it. It doesn't own you anymore. I belong to God in Christ. That makes you God-pleasing. Now the one you want to please in the room is Him. He loves you. He's bought you. And it makes you courageous. It makes you courageous. You can be in any crowd and want to please the Lord and be confident there. And now you can love and serve these people instead of needing to use them for your own view of self. You can be engaged. You can forget yourself. You can be there for God's glory. The gospel gives us courage instead of crowd-pleasing. And you remember the Pharisees and their hypocrisy, they were merciless, right? What does the gospel give us? Mercy, compassion, compassion. This is the way it goes naturally in a human heart, right? I will show you mercy when I think you deserve it. Is that how it goes for you? You'll show mercy and kindness to those who deserve it. And that means if you like them or maybe you feel for them or if they've only hurt you once or twice, okay? At some point, what happens? They don't deserve it anymore. Why? Well, they broke your set of rules, What's your set of rules? It's different for each of us. But they broke your set of rules and you say, I'm done. No more compassion for you. What does the cross do with your set of rules? What's it do with my set of rules? Hard question. Did you deserve Jesus' mercy? Close? Did you come close? 98% deserve. Almost deserve. Were you close? I'm deeply convinced that I've done pretty much everything I can to not deserve it. And Jesus has poured out lavish mercy on me and I'm totally undeserving. And that changes everything. Who deserves our compassion? Everybody. Now this gets, uh, wisdom will play out differently in this. If you're a judge in a courtroom, it's your job not to just throw out forgiveness. You've got to follow the law. But there's a way to do that with self-righteousness, and there's a way to do that with compassion. Or even, who's the blacklist in our world right now, right? Radical Islam. They're just butchering people. Personally, you don't have to share this viewpoint. In my personal opinion, they should be fought violently. I don't think they get beat otherwise. You could have a different opinion. I'm not giving you the God's opinion. I'm just telling you mine. But say you're even fighting them somehow. Do they deserve compassion when you can show it? 
Should there ever be fighting or, or even, even in a just war scenario where you're like, kill the, what are the words we've used in the past? The pigs, you know, the, the brutes demean their humanity. No compassion for you. God doesn't have any. I think it's totally inconsistent with the view of the world as a Christian. No matter how you think life says you've got to act in a certain situation. Look, sometimes relationships end, right? They have to. Sometimes you have to move on. Sometimes there's, there's verdicts. Sometimes there's prisons. In all of life's scope, with all the wisdom issues, and there's a lot of complicated things, but there's never a time for no compassion. Not in the gospel. Because we didn't deserve it. And the moment we showed a comp- compassion to people because they deserve it or not, we are denying the thing that saved us. Your heart is saying in that moment, well, Jesus, you saved me because I deserved it. And you didn't. So rejoice in it. Be broken by it. You were loved, 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 even though you didn't deserve it. And now, because of the gospel, show compassion. Show compassion. I think Jesus' words are amazing here. We started out with this poll that said a lot of people who don't go to church don't go to church because they think 72% of the people there, or 72% of the people think that the Christians are hypocrites. And sometimes you're going to get called a self-righteous hypocrite even when you're not. And it is hard to know that they are hypocrites if, in fact, it's, it's hard for them to know that we're hypocrites if, in fact, they never go to church. It's, does anybody else think that's kind of funny? But either way, Shouldn't we try to leave a different impression on the world? And Jesus' words here are magic. They're perfect. They're brilliant. He's angry at the Pharisees for their self-righteous, hypocritical way they live life. And it hurts God's people and it demeans God to the world. And he shows us how it works, our bad example our lack of compassion, our love to please the crowd because of our pride. And then he gives us the remedy. The remedy of that pride is the cross of Christ where he breaks our superiority, heals our insecurity. And then because of that gospel, we can be humble. You ever met a humble person you didn't like? Humility is winsome. Not only can we be humble, We can be courageous, not owned by the crowds. Not only courageous, we can be compassionate to everyone out there. And if we add that up as a gospel-centered people, we'll be genuine and we'll be compelling. And the world might not want Jesus, but maybe we could leave this impression Those people were humble, courageous, compassionate, and genuine. Maybe there's something. Maybe there is something to Jesus. Don't we want to be like that as a community? Gospel-centered, killing our pride. Let's pray. Jesus, we give you thanks and praise that you have loved us so much. Even though we did not deserve it, we confess to you our pride. Lord, uh, if anyone in here is not a Christian, I pray they just meet with you and see what you've done for them, trust in you. Lord, for everyone who is here, help us to see that we still got prideful remnants in us that need to be 
dealt with. Thank you for the gospel. Help us to always look at you, Lord, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, as we proclaim what you've done, as we eat the bread, as we drink the juice. Let us remember that um, you died for our sins, that you've told us the truth and you've shown us your love, and that we have all we need in you, our identity, our hope, our future. And Lord, let this make us humble. Let this make us courageous. Let it make us genuine, compassionate. Lord, for your glory, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.